Welcome to Building Vesser, the podcast where we talk about the world of Vesser, the IP we're building that is getting closer and closer every day to being released. We're so excited to talk to you about everything that's going on. And this week, we've got a special request. We've got lots of you listening to the podcast, and we're so excited about that. But we'd like to tell the machine brains at Spotify and Apple Podcasts that the show is important. So if you could leave a rating or review for the show, that would help us out a lot. I'm Mike McCarg. I'm Victory Palmisano. And I'm Ann Houck. And this is Building Besser. Welcome to my pattern-wearing friends. <laughs> we all usually wear solids or black often, but today... Generally black for me. Yeah, today, for whatever reason... Ann and I showed up in flannel, and Mike showed up in... Are those fish? Those are fish, and I just forgot we were recording. And I'd been out in the rain with Walking Buddy and looked rough. And so I was like, well, hat and patterns will disguise a lot of things for me today. So I love that because this is an audio podcast, all they're going to get is Mike showed up in fish. <laughs> Well, well, you can see uh, if you go to our social media accounts, you can see little clips of us on the show. So I'm sure at some point there'll be a clip of me on the various social media platforms in a fish button down and a gray T-shirt. Some layering happening. Light gray. This is this is the rare one. I'm usually a charcoal black or like a deep, deep, deep blue. So really shaking it up today. Really shaking it up. Yeah. We all are. Maybe it's because we all have the exact same weather. We're all, wh wherever most of us are across the country, it's 68 degrees today, the high. Except our friends in Texas. Our friends in Texas w are not having the same day. <laughs> I do think that it started out as a 68 degree day in Texas. I think that was, it said 82 with a high Just of 94. Just kidding. Okay. This way... <laughs> I stick to the creative. In Dallas. In Dallas. And? It is 68 degrees. Texas always needs to be different. It always needs to do its own thing. But the rest of us, well, the whole point of me talking about the weather was to say that Ann and I showed up wearing flannel, which is quite rare. I almost went into a whole thing about LA's weather and when <laughs> it would line up with Maine and why. And I was like, no, we don't need to talk about that today. <laughs> Our podcast is not called Microclimates of Southern California. Speaking of microclimates, what about microclimates in Vesser? Let's talk some science. Yeah, that's today's general topic. We got some fabulous questions, all of which are science related. So we could dive into one of them. TH Mullen on Instagram asks, does Vesser have conservation of matter or energy? Absent emanation and sigil arcana there is conservation of matter and energy the vahashath have no concept of the conservation of matter mass energy not at all and if they had scientists like we do they wouldn't have come up with those theories because their easy observation of both sigil arcana and emanation seemingly defies those concepts. Well, I mean, so like if you think about lights, that is a great example. In our universe, photons are emitted from particle interactions. So like an energetic particle, often a photon, but not always, strikes an atom. 
it it's absorbed. The electrons around that item get excited. They'll awfully bump up an orbit to use like a really outdated model of electrons and then collapse down again and then emit a photon that is the difference between the input photon, the excited state, and the collapsed state again. So in our world, that looks like you shine a flashlight on a green leaf and you don't get white light back, you get green light back, right? Those photons are getting absorbed. Physics is happening. But there's all energy. The energy for those original photons comes from, from somewhere. On Earth, generally, most of our photons are coming from fusion happening in the sun. So, to your point, both Sigil Arcanus and Expeditioners, and these actually are all over Hesh as well, there's imminent lanterns, and they just have light forever. <laughs> no batteries, no fuel source, they just produce light. And that's certainly not possible here, but is possible there. Titans by the way, would be a great example. It's common for the primary metabolic function of a Titan to go from being primarily like calorie-based to primarily emanation-based. Like more than half of the total energy input into their body system is coming from emanation as opposed to the metabolism of matter, which is interesting. Where does that come from? The Vahashoth don't know where that comes from. It is discussed. It is part of their inquiry into how reality works. The Runja conceptualized time and space as a great river. And so they kind of think as emanation as another type of the current, another tributary into this great river. But that certainly wouldn't satisfy a physicist on Earth. We just talked about eminent lanterns yesterday, two days ago, when we were testing the thing in the cave. Super. My goldfish memory. This is, I have nothing. Another great question from T.H. Mullen. And T.H. Mullen just dominating the questions, y'all. You gotta, you gotta step it up here. What is the psychology like of getting exiled? Hmm. Overall, we, we've kind of alluded to the fact that the process of being exiled is different for many people. As, as with any big life event, possibly traumatic event, you're going to have different responses. So for a lot of people, there is an innate heroism of becoming emergent, possibly becoming one of the exalted. It could be something that, you know, they've dreamed about, like a small child would dream about becoming a superhero. However, for a lot of people, they're being removed from essentially everything they've known in daily life. And just like with any major life change you would see on Earth, any major occurrence of loss there is the trauma and baggage that comes along with that. And on top of that as well, we've mentioned before that when people manifest their emergent powers, that can happen at any age. So you've got some people who this is occurring to in early childhood, who their life on exile will be essentially what they remember, what they know. And then you've also got people who are like well into their 50s and 60s who've had a life, had something fully established, and now we're changing it up. So I think it would be wildly based person to person, but for sure the process of getting exiled would be a very, very notable event as far as their like personal psychology. I'm going to put the camera back further. Who would have thought? Let's talk about 
ethnicity investor. So in prehistoric times, roughly equivalent to when humans started leaving Africa on Earth, there was a big migration across the land bridge of humans into nausea. Humans had never been in nausea before. But oddly, all these humans had different racial and ethnic composition. And why has been lost to, to history. I mean, it's prehistoric and they don't have anthropology to the degree that we do. But this kind of coalition of all sorts of body arrangements and melanin levels and straight and curly hair and all the things that on Earth we have as markers of being from different climates. They all came across together somewhat in a hurry. And when they arrived in Naja, they encountered mountain Runja and really outnumbered them. And like humans do, kind of declared war on them and won. So humans started conquering the the northern part, northern coastal part of, of Naja. They tried to move inland. They ran into the Torfax. That went very badly for them. <laughs> so they turned around and did not try to move towards Torfax Towers ever again. And then they moved kind of southerly along the of the western coast of Naja until they encountered the Delta Runja. And we have what are basically hunter-gatherers with magic encountering Mesopotamia to ancient Egypt with magic. So humans were not able to pull off on Naja what they did in Africa and Europe. Humans could not conquer the world. Luckily, the Runja thought humans were interesting, particular very high birth rates, and being constantly harried by the Torifex whenever they tried to move inland, thought like, well, maybe we should partner with this primitive sapient species. And they did. And so this kind of this this cooperation is borne out. So what you have is like this this is a period of a few hundred years. So you still have humans of of very different presentation. All, all kind of living together. It's not enough time for, for genetic mixing to create anything looking like a monoculture. And then the, they're so successful that in a period of a few hundred years, they're able to start trading with the Torfax. And then you get the precursor to this empire that spanned all of nausea. But what's interesting is that empire remained united. So instead of falling into infighting, as is so common in human history, the cooperation required to be successful against Titans kind of kept the peace among Torifex, humans, and Runja. But they spread out over a big continent again, and you got people living in different climates for a long time. And so now we get like human ethnicity part two. People are starting to live places long enough to adapt to local climate conditions again. And even though we're all in the same empire... We have regional differences in customs and beliefs. So then you have the cataclysm, right? This horrible event. And then you have the age of consequences. The empire begins to contract. And all the, the refugees of cities falling across the empire, the survivors end up in Hesh. And that's been a couple thousand years, which is a long time, almost 2,000 years that, that, that the situation was going on. But you still have these remnants of these contributing cultures, but these cultures aren't as drawn across lines of race as they are on Earth. But certainly ethnicity became important and 
ethnic identity. So there are people in Hesh who basically name themselves based on the city they were originally from. And that's still kind of a point of pride for them. And so depending on the factors of the the originating kind of city or even city-state they were from in the empire, that might influence how their cultural and family system relates to emergence. So some people think emanation and emanatability is a sign of great blessing, that this is a thing that we celebrate. And so if you are a child in a family system like that, well, now you're chosen and you're special. And so it's sad to leave your family, but you know, like you're adored and there might be a shrine to you in your parents' home and they send you lots of gifts. And then on the other side, there's some people who think emanation is a curse. And they like the second you're you're taken away, they disown you and it's like you never lived. And so then that, so there's like these intersecting factors about how you might be conditioned to respond. And then that's combined with like your own kind of personal physiological predisposition towards or against resiliency. And so the the re- responses to this are as varied as as the people involved. And we speak specifically here of runja and humans. For Torfax, it's like a not issue. You're just, okay, <laughs> you're emergent, off you go. <laughs> you know what's super helpful if we talk about a little bit, I think? Because I don't know if we have directly. Is the runja family union as far as like communal raising? Because it, it looks different than it does on Earth. By and large, they are much more interconnected with each other as far as nests living together aren't necessarily like a mother, father, child. It's a community that has come together that could be relatives or nearby runja that band together as a family unit. So that, that would change things as well due to the fact that it's not exactly a mirror of family dynamics on Earth. That's a good point. Yeah, so Runja live in, they call them nests, literal nests. And their evolutionary heritage is communal nesters. And so, number one, they would all get during mating season, and they have a mating season, unlike humans. They would gather by the thousands and thousands in an area to what? Be safe from predators. <laughs> and so they are both like more emotionally reactive than humans are and less. So like a runja will pop off at almost anything, but then it's over. It, you know, whereas like humans, like we might be a little slower to get into like an angry or neurologically aroused state, but then it's stickier. So they're much more like birds and reptiles in that way than we are, which makes sense. But because of that, they tend to form nesting units of three to 12 individuals. And then everybody kind of lays their eggs in the same pile. And we don't really know whose egg that was when it hatches. And so we all just sort of care for the young. And if, you know, before cities were a thing, if a young like got lost and wandered into another nest, it's, that's just our part of our nest now, very much like geese actually and so then the humans arrive 
And humans in, on Vesser, like on Earth, kind of exist on a spectrum between sort of like pair bonding and then like serial pair bonding. And then like, I'm not into pair bonding. And, you know, all those things exist. So some humans were like, yeah, this nesting thing makes a lot of sense to me. So family units in the Vahashath are very different. Now, certainly there are human families that are like two parents and their children. And that's not weird, but it's not like the normative default family structure because you had a different set of cultural influences. And then, of course, you have the Torfex, which is like several moms called queens. <laughs> They're husbands who mate and then immediately die. And then there are hundreds of thousands of daughters. <laughs> it's a, a very different family unit. What what I was sort of thinking about here is when we look at the behaviors of humans, Runja and Torfex, they're kind of split in their focus of time. Runja are very much reflective past thinking. They're dwelling on just due to evolutionary needs, like what has happened in the past and reactions from that. The Tor effects, however, are incredibly, in ways that we can't go into on the podcast, super future-minded. They're always looking towards the future, and humans are the most sort of rooted in the present. And so you, you could imagine with that that for people rooted in the present there would be a different reaction to this sort of life-shifting event than it would be for people who are mostly like reflective dwelling in the past. And it gets interesting, especially when you go back to the idea of mixed family units where you've got humans around, Runja around, and the like co-mingling of those thoughts, that their idea of what it means to be sent away would start to vary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Runja are very much about, like, they in their language, they have two different conjugations for the past, which is the past and then the deep past. And they view the deep past as having, you know, being the source of wisdom. And then humans are sort of, like, present to future-focused like we are, but, like, humans, we have a lot of data on Earth, tend to make our choices based on what is kind of the most awesome right now. <laughs> Not necessarily what will help us most a year from now, or even a week from now. And the tour effects, and I, I think we can absolutely say this, they take the actions that will benefit them most a year from now, a decade from now, and a century from now. So they just have an extraordinarily genetically long view, which is kind of easy when you're you social and you don't place, you're, you place all value on the collective and literally no value on the individual, which is kind of physiological, or excuse me. Yeah, no, physiologically and psychologically alien to more individualistic or even social animals. Eusociality is wild. Beehives just lose 20,000 bees a day. It's just baked in. And so like a, a bee, no matter how intelligent a bee is, doesn't even have a hesitation to sacrifice themselves for the good of the colony, whether that's in battle or the larvae need to be fed. You know what I mean? Like whatever it takes, they secure the future. I mean, that's that's kind of the whole thing with building the science on Vesser or how things work and act. There's so much wild stuff that occurs on Earth 
that you don't have to go far to find something that, like, if you just amplify it, seems super weird and alien. We'll we'll go through world building, building meetings talking about, like, ants or wasps or fungus or things like that. And you don't have to go very far to get into something that seems, like, fantastical. The Torvex kind of started with me thinking, what if the common ancestor of the Argentinian ant, the honeybee, African and European, and like ground wasps, what if that common ancestor had another branch during the coniferous that got large and then Earth's climate continued to support that getting bigger and bigger as an arthropod? And then started to move towards human levels of cognitive intelligence. What would the world look like? And the Torfex were actually the kind of the first of the three species I really spent a lot of time on in the setting because I was like, man, use sociality on like city scale at like human size would shape a planet. Because you make an argument like right now that fire ants are as successful as any multicellular species in the history of this planet, like right now, including humans, because use sociality is just such an amazing strategy. Okay, but Mike. We're going hard today. What is the airspeed velocity of an unladen sparrow, Mike? Yes, it's a famous little quip. Well, he said he said African or European about the honeybees, and I was thinking the, the swallows. Deep science cuts. That's not a question that has a definitive answer if you're waiting for one victory. I was thinking like bees and tour effects. They're not like super into self-care. Like no one's like, today is a me day. <laughs> <laughs> well, a me day is continuing to work as hard as I can for as long as I can until the day that I die. The ultimate success. They also, in fairness, it's good for the colony. It's good for the colony if every individual does take care of hygiene. So they are constantly cleaning themselves and the other members of their colony. So I mean, that's a form of self-care. Exile has a bunch of hot springs and things like that, like bathing pools, because that's, that's something that's very important to the Runja as a people. Like they are, they'd be all about the self-care. Delta like Runja like can't survive without daily bathing and basking. Literally can't survive. They'll die. So it's like, that's the other thing I think about a lot is like, of the three species, the humans are the smelly ones. <laughs> which is also true. So stinky. They're the stinkiest, which is also true yeah. on Earth. We are a very, very stinky species. So stinky. It's it's wild to say that too, because the Torifex use stink or, or smell to communicate. But do, does that become a problem when it's like, oh, we're trying to talk here and you're just over there stinking? The... Smelling apparatus of eusocial insects, particularly ants on Earth, is so sensitive, we can barely call it smell anymore. We think of, like, dogs have an incredibly sen sensitive sense of smell, and, like, certain birds do as well. But compared to ants, you could take a very small amount of material and stretch it out in a line from here to the sun and ants can follow it. They can literally sense trace amounts of molecules. So even if like humans are wafting incredible amounts of, of molecular information into the air, yes, the Torfax can detect it, but it doesn't override the other things that they can detect. And Torfax appear telepathic 
to humans in Runja because they can put pheromones into the air and communicate in real time. And then they also just leave messages for each other everywhere. So like when you're greeted by a Torfax, they take their antenna and they sort of tap it all over your body. But they leave information on you in the process about their interaction with you. So the next Torfax that greets you reads the journal entries of the last few Torfax who interacted with you. It's just... They get a heads up. It's completely wild. <laughs> a Torfax who's never met the other Torfax learns about that Torfax and their interactions with you just by greeting you. Which is not like a thing, you know, I think humans in Runja have sort of learned from experience. Torfax have spooky insights about people, but I, I think if they knew the full insights into how much Torfax know and communicate, it'd probably freak them out. Which one of my favorite things about the setting is figuring out, like, how signage works. Because, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, what we think is, is accessibility has to be considered in the design of everything because you have three different species with three different sets of sensory apparatus coexisting in the world. It's just totally wild. I mean, to, to the point of signage, I know this isn't exactly what we're talking about today, too. But figuring out where it's put, like height-wise, where there's so much variance and different amounts of limbs, different ocular capabilities, it's a bit of a puzzle. The skill, like, use it like a fortune teller or something? You mean the Torfax? So it, you don't hire a Torfax to do something. You hire the Torfax. So... <laughs> You, you communicate usually through a Hamathi that you need a desk clerk. And then a Torifex will show up to do that job at the appointed times every single day. And if the Torifex who's been doing that primarily ends up molting and becoming another cast, just a different Torifex shows up. Or if that Torifex dies, just a... But I'm saying, can they use their skill to... Not read people's minds, but like sense the information. Can they can they use it as a tool to either manipulate or make money or you see what I'm saying? Manipulation, absolutely. There are tour effects in situations of social intrigue, espionage, things like that. And absolutely they've got a leg up on a human or runja. Because not only do they have like a built-in communication network with the rest of their kind, they can leave messages, they can do things that aren't detected. With an important caveat, the Hamathi can, the yes. social cast of the Torifex. Other Torifex, listen to me, are incapable of lying because mm -hmm. they don't under... The, the very notion of deception is so alien to them. It, they... They couldn't possibly deceive one another. Not to mention deceiving one another would be what? Bad for the colony, right? We're all in this together. So Hamathi are excellent manipulators, but non-Hamathi are kind of constantly supervised by Hamathi to not say something stupid. Say something too honest? Too honest, or a worker might know classified information because another worker was in a room where it was discussed and information just flows freely through the colony. And so someone like ask a Torfex something like a worker or a crafter, they'll just tell them. <laughs> 
So there's like an entire information management discipline among the Hamathi to kind of keep their other members of their colony from just spilling the beans about anything and everything. And to your point, if you were like, how does this dress look or whatever, and the Torfex had an opinion, they would just share it. Yeah, it, it would be honest. Because imagine without any sense of individual identity, belonging is given among the Torfex, rejection's not a thing. How would that shape the way that you communicate with other people? It would shape it profoundly. They're just all very, very honest and not like in a like brutal honesty. They're just they're just an honest species other than the Hamathi, who being evolved specifically to deal with other sapient species quickly learn how to navigate adeptly social conventions and currents to the advantage of what the colony. That's I love whenever either you or Alex have GM'd. And you're having to play like a crafter cast or something like that, like navigating the conversation. It's so fun to watch like the wheels turn of like, okay, what can I say? What can I not say? It's good. And and when you run, what I'll do is when I realize someone's trying to get a Torfex to go somewhere that Torfex is not allowed to go, they'll sort of flip their antenna in one direction and then just say, I can't talk about that. (laughs) Or we can't talk about that. They don't say I, they say we, we us. I asked Alex in Slack. How do the Vahasha think about science? And they have been answering. So Alex is a member of our world building team and understands many things about Vesser better than I do. (laughs) And so I'm really good at here's the science, the cosmology of Vesser. I start to lose the thread a little bit when we get to how do people in Vesser understand science? Because those are subtly different things. And Alex and I have discussed that a lot. And Alex is is kind of sharing the consensus here. So if we think about how the Vahashath understands science, Alex says they don't use the scientific method in a broad academic sense, and therefore, by definition, don't have a discipline of science like we do, which is shocking for people who have been fans of me in the past, that I would create a setting where there is no discipline of science, but it is what it is. But they do have research and observation-based academic learning, which we might colloquially refer to as science in our world. And then obviously at the small scale, they practice science in the technical sense. For example, a farmer might grow several different species of rice in the same plot of land to see which grows the best. And I would add, they also cultivate, cultivate crops the same way humans have here. That's definitely science, but there's not a scholastic community performing experimental research as the foremost means of gaining knowledge and understanding. And now I remember their science is more like science before we had scientists when rational inquiry was a hobby or just part of something you did at in your profession. Think Galileo. The order of signs, that's the people who administer sigil arcana, would have the closest thing to a modern science in their sigil research. But because of the dangers of practical sigil experimentation, their science is often too theoretical to meet our definition. I would say that based on where they are in their history, a scientific revolution would not be inconceivable within the next century or two. And I agree with that. Also, I would say that they were much closer to being on the threshold of a, a scientific revolution before the age of collapse. Like I've said before, I think, you know, they were, they were probably within a century of being a space-faring civilization. Vis-a-vis the first question on this episode, if you can make light 
without an energy input. You can make a lot of things without an energy input that will make it a lot easier to escape the gravity well of a planet. And I'll leave it at that. Maybe one day we'll get to explore, like, what happens when they do hit a scientific revolution. Like, we could see that. And I would also say, and this is important, you might think, well, if energy is so accessible, why don't they live in a literal utopia? And the answer is both sigil arcana and emanation as energy sources are extremely dangerous. They are more dangerous than nuclear energy in our world. They are more dangerous than combining matter and antimatter. And so people who have tried to take too much candy from the candy jar, as it were, are dead and took a lot of people with them. Thus is the tension of life in Vesser. But you could always find like the remnants of what they did. So may, maybe people could figure out there's, there's something someone did here that was big and we shouldn't do it again. Yeah, there's like a giant scar in the earth. There's a, there's an, a chasm in the surface of the planet bigger than the Grand Canyon, within which is a swirling, scarcely understandable, multidimensional vortex, and anything that goes near it is destroyed forever. Or, you know, you walk through a, a forest and you don't realize it, but now you're stuck in a second and a half time loop for all of eternity, and anyone who passes just sees you restarting <laughs> a few steps forever. So the scars of the scars of that work are are terrifying, and it is why the culture is so cautious about these great forms of power. And these are all the juicy bits we get to add to the Gazetteer in hopes that someone finds it one day. Yes. <laughs> yes. Come play the game. You'll learn this stuff yourself. Yeah. That's also why, like, sometimes we ask a question. I'm like, that's a good question. I'm not going to answer it because it's like, it's literally a spoiler. Yeah. I want the players and the screenwriters and the novelists to find this stuff for themselves. Hey, Mike. Hey. Did you think 12 years ago this is what you'd be spending, like, technically business meetings doing, is talking about giant scars in the earth and you social insects? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> I've been in secret making stories for a long time. Yeah. And I had always imagined if there was some path that I might be able to take to do that professionally. But. I'm glad to see this happened. Here's where I pat myself on the back. Me saying, do you write? Yes, but I've never shown anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I was rather coy about it. That was a cool day. Look where we are. <laughs> because, of, because of you, I get to draw bird people daily. <laughs> because of you, I get to draw bird people daily. <laughs> <laughs> A, I, that's a that's a country song isn't it yeah no that's not country <laughs> that's kelly clarkson uh we're on the border uh, okay this is early uh, it was it was pop kind early of. clarkson and early taylor swift are both like one early taylor swift is country in either sphere Early Clarkson, though, I, I don't know. All right, I'm, there's the American pop singer. It singer. Just... That is something Southern that you do as you pronounce your G's that I do not do. Singer. 
No, if I did it Southern, I'd say an early pop singer. It was a twang. It, it did. It did have a little, little like zest on the G. Uh, the, f- as a as a the Florida accent from where I'm from, it would be singer. It wouldn't be singer. It'd be singer. Love that singer. Mm. She sings so pretty. Are you flatten out the er? Man, if you if y'all would have heard me like as a kid, the way I talked. Gosh, although I I worked pretty hard pretty early at trying to get rid of the drawl. And I thought I was super good at it. And then I started traveling and everyone would be like, what part of Georgia are you from? <laughs> I don't know when mine faded, but it used to be strong. Y'all pronounce your G's. Enunciate your G's. I don't think I do G's. You pronounce every letter. <laughs> you you have impeccable diction, Victory. <laughs> you have that full SoCal, like every letter of every word. Well, that wraps us up for today, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a question that you want answered on the podcast, you can actually email Mike directly at mike at vesser.com and he will personally email you back and we will get your questions eventually. We can't promise that it will be immediately, but eventually. I've been doing a consistent 30 to 50 replies a day, so... We're making big headway. Also, to join our wait list and be the first to know about upcoming events, go to Vesser.com, V-E-S-S-E-R.com, and sign up and you will receive emails letting you know about what's what's happening. Please join us next week for more of Building Vesser. Thank you for listening, everybody. Mm-hmm.